want to begin this morning by reading a scripture that I want us to close on. It'll bookend our day, our final day at Dueling Hall as we worship together. And what a run. There's been a, there is a handful of us in the room who've truly been here from the beginning. I thought about the, the better part of valor, should I get you to stand? But then I thought we would create kind of a us versus them, a special people versus non-special people, people the preacher really loves versus those, and eh, not so much uh, the Johnny come latelys. No, 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 we won't do that. But um, several of us have been here from the beginning, and even before we got in here, we were praying for this place and this church, and a lot of great memories. I, I, I wouldn't do justice to recount them, but you know, I think about uh, some people who've been baptized in this room. Uh, I think of a, a man, Brent, who will be here at the 11 o'clock service. He got to baptize his own son right here. Uh, the guy you're looking at got to baptize one of his own sons right here in this room. I'll never forget the morning in September of a couple of years ago when we uh, learned that Laura McAlpin was pregnant and that there was really no way on God's green earth she should be pregnant because of things uh, about her body and a condition. And, and we gathered, and we had only been a church for about six weeks and I remember standing here and being the pastor calling some of you to come pray for her. I didn't know if anybody would come forward to gather around Laura because uh, not everybody knew her. But there were a bunch of people, a bunch of women, and a whole bunch of tears as we prayed for Laura. And uh, that miracle that became a part of our church family. And I think of uh, the night that we had one of the many Fondren covers. Our church family, you've been a part of this, most of you. Uh, we've raised $25,000 for good causes locally and globally in this room, just making good music. And I remember the night that we sang the Beatles all night. That one particular Fondren covered, all we did was the Beatles. And we sang Hey Jude at the end of the night. And a couple was a recipient that night of several thousand dollars from our church to help them in the adoption of their baby. She went home and posted on Facebook, who, who would have thought singing Hey Jude at the top of our lungs would bring a baby, help bring a baby home? I remember uh, looking, well, just this week, looking at a picture right over there of you two, by the way, uh, Robert and Corey, my friends here on the, the front row, and they were standing with my oldest son. And this would have been about two, a little over two and a half years ago, and Robert and Corey at that time were dating uh, they would, through the years, become uh, engaged, become married. But I looked at that picture of RJ, babe, and, and just he was about two feet shorter than he is now, literally. I mean, literally. I mean, the guy, unbelievable, his growth. And I thought about that as I was looking at the picture this week, thinking, you know, a church ought to celebrate growth just as parents celebrate the physical growth of their children and the maturity. A church really ought to be about celebrating lives that, that grow, lives that flourish. And in looking back, we've seen that as a church family. And don't you love this place? Don't you love this place, Dueling Hall? Susan said last night, she goes, you're going to get choked up, aren't you, Robert? You're going to get choked up today, aren't you? She said it like that. And it just gives me this, it gives me this steely resolve to not get choked up today. Every man, by the way, if you notice this, every man when he cries in public, when he's choking back the tears, he says what? You know, I told myself I wasn't going to do this. I said, I'm going to do this. You watch. Every athlete that retires, every man that cries. I told myself I wasn't going to do this. But I told her I wasn't going to do this. But these are special memories. And we are in the days ahead, the months ahead, and I pray the years ahead, we are going to learn a powerful truth that a church is a people before a place. But a place really is important, and I'm a sentimental joker, no doubt about it. And there's going to be, there just is a lot of 
memories attached to this place and just special. We, we celebrate that today. I want us to read the scripture this morning, Ephesians chapter 3. I hadn't even told you where we're going, Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to read verse 14 to 21. I'm going to read it from the screen as you follow along, either looking down or looking up with me. At the end of the service, we'll close our time together by, by reading this aloud. For this reason, I bow my knees. Some of you hadn't got there yet, have you? You want me to give you time. Someone emailed me this week. They said, Pastor, would you give us time to turn? I'm not going to cry, and I'm going to give you time to turn. All right, if you're not there yet with that filler, then you're never going to get there. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. This is Paul to the church at Ephesus. He says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with his power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I want to start with that phrase, I bow. We we don't live in a bowing culture. In fact, in Paul's day, The normative Jewish posture for prayer was standing. Today in Jerusalem, some of you have heard of the the wailing wall, passionate pleas to to transcendence. And even in this this passion as they pray, they're praying standing up. But bowing is a a prayer that denotes a a serious act of dependence. Thus, you, you bow. Bowing is an act, as you know, it's an act of Humility. It's a, a superior, a servant rather, before a superior, a slave before a master, a peasant before a king, uh, an offender before the judge. When a young man in our day, when a young man asks a woman to marry him, what does he do? He bows. He, he gets on a knee. And how long does he stay there? For the rest of his living years. That's exactly right. <laughs> if, he, if he's smart, right? And Paul's saying... We bow. I bow because I want to be humble. This is a prayer of real dependence on God. I can't even stand. Sometimes we sing, I stand, right? I stand. I stand amazed in your presence. And it's kind of funny if we're sitting, right? You're sitting in church. We're singing about standing. I lift my arms. You don't lift your arms, right, because you're Presbyterian. But, you know, we, we sing these things, but do, do we do them? And Paul is saying, hey, this is an actual act. I, I bow. I want to show my dependence on God. And can I tell you, church, that for me in this season, this is really personal for me because I am bowing before God now. I, like three years ago, feel my dependence on Him. I think that I need Him in leading us. And I've been bowing more lately. And when you bow... There's kind of this, this idea that you're not in control. When you bow, you're saying with your posture, speaking from your heart and saying that someone else is in control. You know, we, we live 
in a world with so much technology, so much education, so many connections, and we have so much of a delusion that we are in control. How many of you noticed that we got a little bit of rain this morning? The preacher was praying against it, but you, you noticed we got a little bit of rain. Who controlled the rain? Who brought that rain? Now, we have chief meteorologists. When I was young, they were weathermen. Now they're a chief meteorologist. A lot of Indian meteorologists running around, I guess. But there's a chief meteorologist with a, a Doppler weather radar and sophisticated computer modules to, that are diagnostic tools to, de to detect it all. They can ascertain, determine what's coming our way. But even though they can predict with some varying degree of certainty, right, they can predict the weather, they can't control the weather. You and I cannot make it rain. We can't make the sun to rise or the night to fall. Read Job chapter 40, 41 and 42 for a brief rundown. The oldest book in the Bible probably in the ancient scripture, but it's still true today scientifically. I'm telling you, scientifically it's true today. Man can do none of these things, only God. Some of you, uh, even leaders in our church have said, Robert, what about this? What about this? Do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this? And I just have this strange sensation that it's okay that I, if I don't know every outcome. I have a lot of uncertainty in my life. I bet you do too. I, there's a lot of things in life, have you noticed, that's just unpredictable. Uh, life goes down a path that we just don't know about. But here's what I'm learning. Every time my mind goes down worry road, every time I want to push the panic or the freak out button, and I, like you, am tempted to do that. Every time worry comes my way, I am learning as I bow at this season of my life that I can trust God, that he's bringing about a joyful, non-anxious, confident, God-trusting, best version of Robert Greene that there is. And I'm learning. I'm learning to bow. And I'm learning to pray. That's kind of simple, isn't it? Do you guys pray? And what are your prayers? Dale Moody, I believe it was the man who said, if you want to humble somebody, ask them about their prayer life. Can you feel that? And do you pray? And what are you asking God for? Jesus' most simple parables had to do with being persistent in prayer. See Luke chapter 11, pray, 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 keep on praying. What if you lose heart? What if you grow weary? Keep on praying. What if God doesn't seem to be responding to your prayer? Keep on praying. What if you're running out of steam? There's no more momentum. You just don't have the gumption to do it anymore. Keep on praying, Jesus taught. He said in Matthew 7, ask, seek, and knock. Psalm 66 tells us that a lot of our prayers are not answered because we regard iniquity in our heart. In other words, we need to deal with sin. We're asking God for a lot, but are we asking him to do a transformative work in us? And are we obedient to the things that we already know to do? James chapter 4 says, you have not because you ask not. I really believe it, y'all, that some of you, you're, you're not seeing God do something in your life. You're not even asking him. You have not because you ask not. You, you ask and do not have, James 4 says, because you ask it to consume it upon your own lust. Your prayers could be very selfish. What if all your prayers were answered? What if all the prayers you prayed so far in 2014, what if all those prayers were answered like that? Would you be the only one who benefited? 
We, we have common prayers that we pray, Lord, be with me. You ever pray that one? Lord, be with me. Be with me. And I envision God saying, I already got that one. I've already promised you I will never leave you or forsake you. Lord, Lord, give us traveling mercies. Do you ever pray that, pray that prayer, traveling mercies? And I envision God saying, drive the speed limit. Put on your seatbelt. Put down the cell phone. We say, Lord, help me on this test. A lot of you prayed that. Lord, help me. Oh, Jesus, come quickly or help me respond on this test. And I envision God saying, study, work hard, use the mind I've given you. Don't sit around and expect me to transmogrify your brain. And then you say, God, what is transmogrify? And God says, see, you didn't study for the test. <laughs> we say, God, bless this food we're about to eat. And I envision God saying, put down the double bacon cheeseburger and the fries and the milkshake and go get some broccoli. It's got a pre-blessing already attached to it. <laughs> I pray, I pray. Notice Paul's prayer. What a powerful prayer. You know what the preacher's going to say. He's inviting us in to pray this type of prayer, but he prays that we would be strengthened, that, that you would be strengthened in your inner man. I have one of, it's one of my favorite stories about this, this idea of strength. There's a strong man at a circus, and every night at the end of his act when it was finished, he would get a sponge, and this real burly, masculine, strong man would just wrench out the sponge until every drop of water is gone. But he would challenge the onlookers. He offered an invitation, $100, for anybody that could come up, any other strong man that could come up and just get a drip of water out of the sponge. No one could take the offer. No one could collect the $100. Nobody could do it. Such was this man's strength until one day, a scrawny, skinny, geeky, nerdy little man with glasses came up. And he got the sponge, and he drained out a full glass of water. And the stunned, the strong man said, who are you and what do you do? And this little guy said, I work for the IRS. <laughs> Unexpected strength from a surprising place. I think that's Paul's idea here, that your life and mine would surprise people. It would delight people because we've got a strength that maybe other people don't naturally see because it is a spiritual strength. It's, a, it's an inward strength. Because why? Because Christ dwells in you. Hey, strong men, strong people, how is your strength working for you? What you're battling against, that temptation, that conflict, that Wisdom for a future decision or direction. You're doing it in your strength, but I'm asking you, how's that working for you? And Paul's inviting us into a whole different way of living, and he's saying your strength is an, it's an inward strength. That's why I bow. That's why I'm praying that Christ will be formed in you. The idea and the word he uses in the ESV that we read is dwell. That's a simple word, but here's what I love about the Greek language. If you get a chance, go to seminary and study this. But the Greek language, it gives uh, two different word uses for the word dwell. And the first 
one is a temporary residence. It's used, by the way, in Ephesians chapter 2 when it, when it describes, when Paul describes a follower of Jesus in this world. He says that we're strangers or that we're aliens. We dwell in this world. And we're different. In other words, we're, this is a temporary home for us. Carrie Underwood has a song about that. That's the Greek language here for dwell in Ephesians chapter 2. But here we are in Ephesians chapter 3, and a different Greek word is used for dwell. It means a permanent resident. It means Jesus fully occupying your life by faith in the power of his spirit and taking up residence in your life forevermore. That's the strength that he wants to give. I bow, I pray. I pray that you would be strengthened in the inner man. And that prayer, by the way, is prayed in the context of community. It's not that you would be a really strong person on your own and that you would be strong on your own and that you would have Christ formed in you and be strong and that you would and you would independently, but that we, we, would, we would experience that together, that, that, a, that an entity called the church would be rooted and grounded and built up and that it would bring life to other people. The scripture that we read, it says that he's able, that our God is able. And some of you need to hear that this morning. Our God is able. Our God is able to deliver. No power can stop him. No obstacle can thwart him. No circumstance can worry him. No outcome can confuse him. Our God can deliver. He delivered Daniel from a lion's den. He delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from a fiery furnace. He delivered a boy named Joseph from a prison. He delivered David from Saul's anger. He delivered the Israelites from Egyptian stronghold. He delivered Esther from her plight. He delivered Elijah from Jezebel. He delivered Paul from a Philippian jail. And Paul himself says that God is a deliverer. He can bring you out of the circumstance that you're in. Our God is a deliverer. Our God, he is able. He is a provider. He fed his people every day for, with manna for 40 years. He brought water out of a dry rock. He sent ravens, not from Baltimore, but the actual birds. He sent ravens to a man named Elijah by a brook and, and fed him. He, he took two fish and five loaves and fed 5,000 people with 12 baskets full. Our God provides. Paul, who wrote in Ephesians, wrote in Philippians from that jail cell, in Rome, in jail, in chains, in great hunger. And he said, my God shall supply richly all of your needs. Our God is able. He's able to deliver. He's able to provide. He's able to change hearts. He changed the hardened heart of Pharaoh to let his people go. He strengthened the frightened heart of Gideon to deliver his people. He changed 
a maniacal zealot's heart named Saul who became a self-sacrificing Christian missionary named Paul. He changed an impetuous denier named Simon and turned him in to a rock-solid leader named Peter. God can change hearts. A few moments ago when I mentioned God being a deliverer, I mentioned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that from Children's Sunday School? In the book of Daniel, it tells us that story that they went through a fiery furnace. By the way, Peter would say later in 1 Peter, we've studied this here before, he would say, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeals, the trials that come your way. You're going to have to go through some stuff. And these guys had to go through something, literally a fiery furnace. And in Daniel 3, look at it later, it talks about that there was no hairs burned on their head. Even I can appreciate that. And another distinctive idea that it gives us, it says that there was no smell of fire on them. Now they went through a furnace, but the scripture says there was no smell of fire on them. Last week I took my boys to Atlanta. It was our version of spring break. And we went over thinking it would be a very inexpensive trip, but boy was I wrong. But there we were at the Hilton Garden Inn, about a mile from the dome, within walking distance. And we just had a great time. We, we got to see the, the Bulldogs lose and other people win, and we celebrated that. We just, it was just father-son time. And the last night we were there, we went back to the room, and despite my better judgment, we bought some snacks at the bar. Sorry, Mom. Uh, well after midnight. Just a bunch of unhealthy snacks because we were ravenous. And we went up to the room, and the last thing that was not eaten was just a little thing of microwavable, supposedly, microwavable mac and cheese. And I said, hey, RJ, do you want the mac and cheese? Yeah, throw it in there, Dan. And about a minute and a half later, <coughs> and we run to the microwave to open it up. And I mean, smoke was everywhere. And the smartest guy in the room is my 15-year-old. He got a big hotel towel, jumped up on my bed, and started fanning by the smoke alarm, just doing this. The smoke was covering the room. I mean, it was, it was bad. It's hard to exaggerate how much smoke filled the room. Our eyes were burning. We were coughing. Inevitably, the alarm goes off. We got to know some of our neighbors. And it was just security comes to the, you know, we walked out in the hall. We were removing clothing. We were in the hallway for a good part of an hour. Smell was on us. And even a few days later, back at home, here in Fondren, in my bedroom, what's that smell, I said, as I went to just a few other residual articles of clothing from my suitcase that was in that room. And I, I grabbed them and went straight to the shower. I got that suitcase, went to the deepest part of the garage. The smell was still there. And I'm stating the obvious. When you go through something, especially if there's smoke, Smell lingers. And what a beautiful little statement from Daniel. It's God's way of saying, using precise language. It's his way of saying to those who want to study this ancient story that God will bring you through something. He'll allow you or cause you to go through a fiery furnace. I'm sorry, but he'll bring you out of it. He'll be your deliverer. And man, does he deliver. But the trouble is, some of you really stink. And I want to tell you this morning that I don't want to smell like everything I go through. Do you? 
And some of you have been through a furnace. You've been hurt by somebody. You've been hurt by a church or a, a business partnership or relationship. And you just carry that smell with you. It's what you think about. It's what you talk about. You've been through something. When people are around you, they know what you've been through. But it's not God's deliverance in your life. It's you being foul. It's the stench of complaint. There's a story of a grandpa whose little brats, his, grand, their, his grandsons were around him. And he was taking a nap. He had nodded off. And they took some of that really bad-smelling cheese. And they, he had one of those uh, handlebar mustaches. And they put this really nasty-smelling cheese all over his handlebar mustache while he was sleeping. And he woke up, and he was smelling. He goes, whew, this bedroom stinks. He walked in the kitchen, smelling some more. Whew, this kitchen stinks. He walked outside to open pasture. Whew. The whole world stinks. And that's the way it can be for us. When some stink gets on you, when you've been through something really hard, but you haven't seen the deliverer show up and remove impurities and teach and instruct you, it gets kind of stinky. I want to close. I'm turning toward home. But at the end of this passage... Paul uses an interesting phrase. He talks about God doing exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, all that we imagine. And Paul says, he uses this phrase that I find fascinating, funny, perplexing. He says, glory in the church. Now, that word, church, is this word. A lot of you know this. Some trendy churches have named their church this. Uh, Ecclesia, that's the Greek word. That first word, ek, means called, and the, the other word means out. And if you put all the ideas of this together from the other words, this word for church means to be called out. It's a gathering of people who are called out, who gather around an idea. We're called out. We ought to be different. We gather around an idea, something bigger than ourselves. That's what church is. But the English word for church was derived from a German word. It's this word here. And this word here uh, doesn't denote so much a gathering, a calling out, a movement. It, it denotes more of a, a religious gathering. It denotes a place that dispenses goods and services where, where authority figures become powerful and they serve according to their own self-interest. If you've never church, studied church history, I recommend a book called Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. It, it, you, you could learn about important men and women who went before you and I, who've given us a, 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 a really substantive faith. And one man is named William Tyndale. And William Tyndale was the Englishman who gave his life for this idea. He, he, that wasn't his word. The other word, he wanted to be translated. He wanted, uh, when, when he did his work, to have the English, the Bible translated into common English, he wanted that word in the Greek to be known to the English as a movement. The church is not a place where you go. It's a group of people that you are a part of. And there is an idea that's much bigger than your pettiness. It's the idea that Jesus is a life changer. 
and William Tyndale at the stake right before he was about to be burned, before he was about to be hanged, he prayed his last prayer was that God would open up the eyes of the king of England. And if you've ever seen a King James version of the Bible, you'll know that God answered William Tyndale's prayers, one of the greatest reformers in church history. He died for this idea that I'm about to talk to Fondren Church about this morning. A church, according to God's intention, is a group of people who are called out who gather around an idea, who are involved in a movement together. And Paul uses that expression, glory, glory in the church. Now, when Moses was taking the people of Israel through uh, the wilderness on the way to the promised land, he got tired and frustrated. He was very uncertain. Anybody uncertain about things, something in life? You're very uncertain. You don't know the future. Moses did, and he prayed this really remarkable prayer to God. He said, God, show me your glory. The psalmist would later say in Psalm 19 and many other places, the heavens declare the glory of God. An ocean view, a mountain vista, we get that, right? I mean, that is God's glory. If you've ever been in the country or out in the desert and you've looked up at the night sky, God reveals his glory. That is sure, that's easy to see, isn't it? That's God's glory. That's the handiwork of God. But glory in the church, I mean, look at us. We're so inglorious. I mean, look at yourself. Look at the person next to you. Inglorious, messy, broken, riddled with sin and confusion. And Paul says that there's glory in the church. Now, what I know in the church are there are critics in the church. When I was little, I loved the Muppet Show. Anybody know? Anybody remember the Muppet Show? And there were some guys, some old grumpy dudes, uh, Statler and Waldorf. You remember those two guys? And they would sit up. Uh, I'm, I'm pitching this to the 50 and older crowd. Uh, there, there were two older guys who would sit up in the balcony. By the way, we're going to a church that has a balcony. But two guys, would, and it's going to be closed. But two guys were up in the balcony. These guys on the Muppet Show. And you know what they would do? They would criticize, they would analyze, and they would take everything apart. Analyze this, analyze that. Wasn't that a movie and a movie sequel recently? And that's, that's, that's what's inside the church. And let me tell you my testimony. When I was young and in church, the early stages of my life, that was me. I was like the surly dudes literally up in the balcony. I would criticize, attack, and tear things apart. And let me warn you, you know what God called me to do? He called me to be a pastor. Okay? Just let that serve as a warning for some of you. But we, we criticize. I, I googled what are the most common criticisms of church today, American church today. And pretty common, none of these will surprise you probably. The room was too cold, the music was too loud, the minister's too old, the parking's too limited, the people are too unfriendly, the seats are too hard, the sermon is too long, as if that could even be possible. Uh, we complain. And there's a new phenomenon. I, I can't say it's terribly new, but we're studying it now. We're analyzing it back and forth. But it's a group of people called the de-churched. And it's a growing group of people. Paul says there's glory in the church, but there's a lot of people running from the church. Have you noticed? 
There's a lot of people that you, you couldn't get them here today even at gunpoint maybe. And there's a, a burgeoning group of people who are really fed up with the institutional nature of the organized religious structures of our day. They see church as a place that's full of bureaucracy, that has authority figures that are handing out rules without the input of the common people. They see it as a stifling, draining place that's cut off from the real world, that's removed from what's really happening and closed off to progressive ideas. Hardly a, a week or two goes by where I don't bump into someone, especially in Fondren, who feels that way. But they're not all uh, the younger generation. There's actually a disorder, I think, if we can put that up, Laura. It's post-traumatic church syndrome. You'll be hearing about this soon in the American Psychological Journal. PTCS, I'm calling it. It presents a severe, negative, almost allergic reaction to inflexible doctrine, outright abuse of spiritual power, dogma, and often praise bands and preachers. Internal symptoms include but are not limited to withdrawal from all things religious, failure to believe in anything, depression, anxiety, anger, grief, loss of identity, despair, moral confusion, and most notably the loss of the desire to darken the door of a place of worship. Chuckle if you want, but that's real. That's very, very real. This week, I talked to a young lady. She said, I, I didn't give up on God. I, I gave up on the church. I'm back now, but I still don't know if I trust it. And to that is our church. Now, this idea, I believe, glory in the church. Is it just like someone was at spring break last week, and they were at the beach, and they looked up and said, hey, that's pretty cool. This idea is that if we bow and if we pray, and if we're joined together and we see God do a strengthening in our inner being, if we see God, a Father who is able, do a work of delivering, a work of providing, a work of, a work of changing our hearts, then people could look at us like they would a sunset or a beach or a mountain peak and they could look at us as the church and say, thank God for creating that place. Thank God for this group of people. That's my prayer as we move. That's my prayer as we make a transition. That people would see the glory of God because of us being a gathered people called out around an idea, around a movement. I bow and I pray. I'm praying for me and I invite you today to pray for me. I've said that more than once lately. It sounds terribly selfish, doesn't it? Narcissistic guy at Fondren Church. Pray for me. But pray for me and pray for us as we leave. Last week I was reading the story of a man who planted a church that I've admired for many, many years, a long way away from here. But when he planted the church, somebody said to him when, they, when he shared the idea in the formative stages, they said to him, dude, you can't just have a church. Like, you got to be a legal entity. He said, all right, I'll go, I'll go to a lawyer. And this pastor recounted the time 
with the attorney. The lawyer says to him, why are you doing this? And he said, I want to see God change lives. And the lawyer was in one of those moods, I suppose. And he said, people don't change. Selfish people are always selfish. Bitter people are always bitter. Greedy, they're always greedy. And this pastor said in the formative stages of this church that's brought so many to faith in Jesus, he said, I'm betting my life against it. When Paul said, I pour out my life as a drink offering. When he got to the end of it all and said, I fought a good fight. I've run the race. I've finished the course. I've given it my all. I believe Paul preached it, but he experienced it. That Jesus can and does change lives. And that is my prayer. I'm not the first pastor to ever say it. And I hope I'm not the last. And I hope I'll keep it in front of you. But that we won't stray from the gospel being good news. For if the people are going to see our lives change and they're going to see our church give life and say, I'm so thankful for that place. I'm so thankful for that group of people. Now let me say, switching gears a little bit. Y'all know that we're not going to be here next week. If you come, someone will be here to first laugh at you and then point you next door. But we're going to be next door, and we believe that God has opened that door for our church. Henry Clow, one of my favorite writers, has a book called Necessary Endings. For our church, this is a necessary ending, our time here in Dueling Hall. It's really not much of a choice. We're so glad that God has opened the door. And I don't know if you've experienced it. I bet some of you have. It would be very gratifying for me if you've experienced this to nod your head when I say it. But I, I bumped into a lot of people. This happened to Susan last night at Zippity Doodah. More than, more than a few people have said, we're so glad you're going next door. And we're so glad that you're going to save that old church. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus alone saves. But that's an old building over there. And I believe that God has called us first and foremost to have space where we can worship. To potentially have a permanent location. But I believe that God is calling us to be a part of the renaissance of Fondren. And help restore a building. You see, we met with them Monday night once again. And we brought, Gary and I brought over a lot of our guys to meet with a lot of their guys. And there was emotion in the room. And these men, every one of them shared. You ever been in a small group and say, hey, everybody share something. Nobody shares. Or only one or two people share. It's, it's awkward. And, you know, you want, to, you want to look for a new group, you know. Um, but Gary, after our prayer, said, you guys, just share. Share where you are. And every single person in that room said to us, they are so glad that God is bringing us there. And they had a fear that the door over there would shut down. And I'm saying to you, I'm putting this on you, not me. God is using you as a part of this church, your commitment, your generosity. For some of you, different means bad. And I'm going to try to be very patient with you. And some of you will probably lose you in the transition. But I'm asking for you guys to bow and to pray that we would be a people called out on mission around an idea 
that Jesus changes lives. And I do believe that our patience, your patience and mine, is really going to pay off. I believe we're going to be challenged. I believe we're going to enter into the throes of, of some really cool stuff. I believe God is going to form the character of our church. And what's already beautiful, and imagine how gratifying it is for me as pastor of Fondren Church to walk around this community, literally to walk around this community, and have people stop me and say they're so excited about this open door. And young people saying this is the church they want to be a part of, not a church that builds bridges and separates itself, but a church that comes together. And we're going to be one church building with two church congregations. And I believe it's going to be a really, really beautiful thing. And I want to challenge you to be a part of it. And I want to challenge you to pray for us as we lead during these days. And I want to challenge you to sign up to work preschool once every six weeks. Please. Laura, can I get an amen? Amen. We're moving to one service. Isn't that cool? All of us together, these 11 o'clock people, far inferior than you. Uh, they'll be here in a minute. A lot of you don't get to see them. We'll have an opportunity. We envision a day where we have dinner on the ground. We're going to fix up that playground. We're going to bring a lot of improvements to the building and a place that we can be proud of, a place we're praying that our ministry partners could use where we can not just give 200 million flowers a place to office, but other partners of Fondren Church as well. This won't be, just be about us. This will be about the church. It'll be about partnership. And I think it'll be a really beautiful thing. Would you pray with me? Lord, often we stand and we live prayerless lives. And our prayers are gimme, gimme, gimme. And Lord, I thank you for Paul in Ephesus. And that the early church just, uh, I mean, wow, it just demonstrates risk and boldness going into the eye of danger, trusting you for provision and deliverance, and not in any shape thinking small. And Lord, elevate our thinking for the future that you have for us. And it blows me away to think that you are the God, that you are able, and you're able to do, you're able to go way beyond. You're able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we ask or that we think. And I pray that you would move us away from a website and social media and a, a new church app where we overpromise and underdeliver. I pray that you would move us into a place and into an era of the life of this church and this community for the sake of the gospel and the world where, Lord, you would surprise us in unending ways of what you do. Lord, strengthen us. May you, Jesus, be our strength formed in us in the inner man. Lord, today, I think of these many months over two and a half years, getting closer now to three, where you've done a work in people. I even think of the day where I stood here when no one else was in the room and a couple came in and they were on their last with their marriage and we stood here and we lit candles and we opened up the word and we knelt 
strength to be formed in a husband and a wife. And we talked about a marriage and what it means and the mysteries thereof and a church and a bride and a consummation and a glorious, rich future. Do a work here, Lord. Move us away from critics in the balcony. Lord, help our church to draw in the de-churched and those who are still stinking and smelling. And Lord, I pray for anyone here today that's got the smell on them. Lord, you want to bring them through and you want to remove the debris and you want to bring out a better version, a Christ-formed version of their lives. And I pray you do that. God, I'm so grateful. So humbled. Lord, let us love you. And in loving you, Lord, I pray that we would love our church. And roll up our sleeves and sacrifice and give and demonstrate patience. And serve in ways we never have. In Jesus we pray.